stand for the reading of God's word. The scripture this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse He shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is God's word. Good morning. Before we look to the Lord's word together, would you join me? in praying. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, we thank you for who you are, for for the things that you've done in your marvelous works to bring salvation and peace and hope to a world that's wrought with sin and strife. We thank you for the word that you've given us in your scriptures to instruct us, to guide us, to explain to us, and even to promise to us, according to what you've done, what you will still do in bringing peace to all creation. We look now to your word, and as we do that, we ask that you'd ask me to, to speak and help us to see clearly Help us to be humbled and challenged as well as emboldened to live by faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior, who's come, born into humanity, and who promises to come again to establish a perfect and everlasting peace. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Well, since... 1901, every year, the Nobel Peace Prize is awarded to some official, some person who's achieved some measure of peace or represented some notion of peace in the world. 
In 2001, on the 100th anniversary of the Nobel Peace Prize, the United Nations and its Secretary General Kofi Annan, do you know that name, Kofi Annan? He's from Ghana. They were awarded the 100th anniversary Nobel Peace Prize for having revitalized the United Nations and having given priority to human rights around the world. And the Nobel Committee also recognized Kofi Annan's commitment in the struggle to contain the spreading of the HIV virus in Africa and in his opposition to terrorism. So that was 2001, but in 2004, Kofi Annan spoke and he lamented and he expressed regret. 2004 was the 10th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide in which 800,000 people were murdered. And Kofi Annan expressed that he should have and he wished he would have done much more in hopes of preventing that great genocide. He said, I should have and I could have done much more to sound the alarm and to raise support in order to prevent this catastrophe. See, he, he admitted that, that the United Nations Department of Peacekeeping should have made much better use of media in order to prevent this genocide, in order to raise awareness and to, to unite and inform the nations to rally against this threat that was coming in the violence in Rwanda. And in order to put pressure on governments to address this. But the horrible crisis occurred <clears throat> despite his great strides in achieving peace around the world. His strides were limited. And this morning as we anticipate Christmas, our Advent theme and our, our passage in Isaiah 11, both of them teach us about the branch who comes to establish peace, the peace that God promises between God and man and the peace that God promises amongst all creation. And so this is a promise of, of hope, a promise of, of the future that's found nowhere else, achieved nowhere else but in Jesus Christ. And so it's important for us, as we get started, I think, to, to, to notice and to clarify that, that peace is, is not just the absence of conflict, but, but as I was researching peace this week, I found almost identical statements from Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, uh, Billy Graham, Ronald Reagan, and Barack Obama, all saying that, that peace is not just the absence of conflict, but, but that it includes this positive uprightness of, of goodness and truth and what's just. And this morning, as we look at Isaiah 11, I hope that you'll see God's promises, which, is, which are being made of this coming righteous branch from Jesse, who will come to establish righteousness, equity, and a perfect everlasting peace. And this perfect everlasting peace is going to be between God and people, and it's going to be amongst people themselves, and even with creation. To quote the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, this peace is going to come far as the curse is found. Everything will be restored. Nothing will be left untouched when God makes peace. 
And here in Isaiah 11, we're going to see that Jesus, Jesus alone brings perfect and everlasting peace far beyond what 120 years of Nobel Peace Prize winners or what thousands of years of human history have ever achieved or ever might achieve. And so this morning, we're going to look at Jesus, the righteous branch, the Prince of Peace. And we're going to first look at the the righteous branch. Then we're going to look at his righteous breath. And thirdly, the righteousness that he's going to bring. So first, let's look together at the righteous branch. As we look at the righteous branch, I'm reminded of several times in my life where, where I've seen a terrible sight, a terrible sight of a forest that's been totally destroyed and cut down. I remember this once as a teenager. I drove through Yellowstone uh, National Forest, and there was mile after mile of trees that had been burnt down. There was no life for miles and miles. The second time where I saw something like this was was a forest in, in the African country of Swaziland that had been cut down for lumber, miles and miles of stumps with no life. It was barrenness as, as far as the eye can see. And, and maybe you've seen something like this. Maybe you haven't, but maybe you've read the Dr. Seuss book, The Lorax, and you can at least picture uh, all the, the uh, chopped down trees um, in the book, The Lorax. It's a terrible and it's a sad scene. And this is the kind of scene that we come to in today's passage in Isaiah 11. Isaiah 9 and 10 have just described God's judgment against evil. He's described this judgment as that of this, the destruction, as being like the destruction of a vast and lofty forest. And that this is the estate that both Judah and Israel find themselves in. As a divided nation, their faithlessness and their disobedience had led to God's destruction of that nation by the Assyrian Empire. And as a kingdom, they're compared to a forest that's been cut down, desolate and bleak. The royal line of David, which had once been highly exalted, became a series of unfaithful kings. And this royal line of David has been cut down to stumps, just as the nation, with no life left in it, dry and barren. But out of these dry and barren stumps, here in Isaiah 11, we're promised that out of the stump of Jesse, who if you remember, that's the the father of King David, Jesse, out of this barren stump, God promises that a fruitful branch will unexpectedly spring forth. And that from, uh, it says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And so as we approach Christmas, you're probably not going to be too surprised to hear me say that, that this branch that's, that comes from the stump of David, the stump of Jesse, is Jesus. And that's what Acts 13, 23, tells us very specifically. It identifies Jesus as the promised son of David. That's what we see repeatedly in the Gospels as they talk about the birth of Jesus, that that he's born in the city of Bethlehem. He's born to the family of David, in the place of David. And that even the first verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, 
starts by identifying Jesus as the son of David. And it, it starts with the simple phrase that, that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And so this title of the son of David, this identification of Jesus with David as the, the branch that comes out of the stump is so important to the concepts of the New Testament, to the identity of Jesus. And likewise, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2 talks about the spirit of the Lord that's going to rest on this, this branch that sprouts forth. And, and that's what we see in Matthew chapter 3 as the spirit descended like a dove on David. And so I'm pointing out these things because I want you to see first that, that Jesus is this promised one that Isaiah is speaking of. And that these claims are not, not my words, but God's words. It's consistent and repeated throughout the scriptures. But there's more that I want you to see. There's more that I want you to know than just the simple fact that Jesus is the one who was promised. That's critical and it's important, but I especially and also want you to see this morning that, that we too are dead and dry like this forest of stumps, like Israel was, that we too are deserving of God's punishment for our many sins. And that as we look around us, as we look within us, we see despair and poverty and hurt. And so we too, like Israel, are in need of this branch. Desperately in need. And that's what, what this passage in Isaiah and what, what the New Testament as well teach us. That Jesus is going to bring something so much grander, so much better than anything else that the world might bring anything else that's offered or that we might realistically hope for in the world. Romans chapter 3, if you remember, says that, that no one is righteous, not even one. But righteousness is freely given to all who merely have faith in Christ, no matter what they've done. And that his perfect righteousness is considered to be yours and mine. And our sins are passed over because of Jesus. And that... This is the judgment he's going to bring. Isaiah promises that, that the branch, as we read, is going to come. He's going to judge. He's going to bring peace. And he's going to do so much better and much more fully than King David or King Solomon ever did. And he's able to do this because this branch is God himself. Here in Isaiah 11, it tells us that that this branch is going to judge and he's going to decide. And it says that twice. If we read verses 3 and 4, it says, His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And so there's this identity of the branch where he's going to be judging and deciding. And he's... He's able to do this because he's God himself. In Isaiah chapter 2, the prophecy tells us that, that it's God himself who will judge and decide. And so Isaiah uses those same words here in, in chapter 11 to teach us that, that this one who's coming is going to be God himself. And so he's able to bring the peace. That Jesus, unlike men, is not going to judge based on outward appearances or hearsay. But he judges from perfect knowledge of truth. 
God alone is able to penetrate our hearts, examining them and seeing through our masks, seeing through our complex situations and searching our hearts. And he'll make no mistake in his judgments. And we know that struggle and we know our limitations as humans to not be able to see others' hearts. Um, as a parent, we do, this with our, we do this with our kids all the time, trying to figure out what actually happened. Or, or maybe you do it at work all the time. What actually happened? I don't know. We've got to search what's actually gone on and, and try to get to the root, uh, to the truth, so that we can make a good judgment. But, but God himself is able to see everything. And so this root, uh, excuse me, this branch who comes, this Jesus, is going to be able to judge truly. And ultimately, and most importantly, <clears throat> when this righteous branch comes to judge truly, he, he comes to do this to establish peace and to offer that peace to you and I. But how does he do that? How can he do that if we're deserving of sin? Well, Isaiah goes on in chapter 53, using the same language as he does in, in Isaiah chapter 11, and says, like a root out of the dry ground comes the one who upon him is the chastisement that brought us peace. And so the answer is, is, how can he do this? It's because he takes upon himself the chastisement that accomplishes our peace. That Jesus was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. That God the Father laid on him the punishment that we deserve as the sacrificial lamb who was brought to the slaughter. And so he establishes the peace by taking upon himself the judgment that our sins deserve. So it's not an ungrounded peace, but it's an established peace which is given to us by this righteous branch. And now I want to turn and look at, at this idea of his righteous breath, which is a bit of a strange phrase. And what I, what I want you to see as we've just read verse 4, is that this branch, the son of David, who's Jesus, he's going to strike the earth, the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. And so as we're talking about his righteous breath, like Isaiah, what I'm referring to is, is the word that he speaks, the word of God, the word of Jesus, which comes. It comes as judgment to defeat evil, and it comes to declare the gospel of peace that he pronounces. As God, it's merely by the word of his mouth that Jesus will judge, that he'll bring peace, that he'll defeat evil, that he'll finally end poverty and oppression forever. If you remember from back in Genesis, it was merely by the power of his word that the heavens and the earth were originally created. And so, too, it shouldn't strike us as so odd that, that he establishes peace by the word of his mouth. And this is beyond our comprehension in some ways. 
that Jesus would speak, and it's merely so that he speaks reality into existence. Because this is so like anything else in the world that, that we know or experience. It's unlike really any superheroes that we even imagine. That he can speak truth into existence with his words. If you think even of Aladdin, Aladdin, his wishes are not just granted when he makes them, but the genie holds the power. There are Aladdin's words, but the genie's power. And even the genie can't bring people back from the dead. But Jesus, as he speaks, he brings into existence what he speaks. As he called forth creation from nothing, he can declare and establish peace with his word. Declaring peace with people. Declaring peace among people. Declaring peace with creation. And this is what we see in John chapter 14. When Jesus says, for all who love him and keep his word, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. And here we have this declaration of the gospel from Jesus' lips, from his breath, that people would no longer be considered guilty before God and facing the judgment we deserve, but we're forgiven, we're even considered righteous, and we have this eternal promise of peace which Jesus himself has purchased when he died on the cross. And it's a, it's a promise of peace that will be finalized only when he comes again. And so as Romans chapter 5, verse 1 summarizes, we have peace with God because you've been justified by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his word, through the gospel of Jesus, you have an abundance of knowledge of God's truth and of God's promises, much more than Israel ever had in the days of Isaiah. And for all who believe in Jesus, his breath and his word are going to be a sweet-smelling aroma of peace for you, declaring you pardoned from sin and righteous in God's sight. But for all who do not have faith, it, it, it carries a terrible stench. His righteous breath would be much worse than onions and garlic and coffee. It's the stench of the threat of death because of sin. But the goal of Jesus' words, the goal of his breath is not the destruction of the wicked, the Bible tells us, but it's the offering of peace. So that when the promise comes that everything in all creation will be established on the principles of goodness and righteousness and justice, this peace is offered to you. And you can know that this peace will ultimately have the last and the final word. One of the most compelling and familiar Nobel Peace Prize winners to us is Mother Teresa. And Mother Teresa won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1979. After spending a lifetime of serving the extremely poor in Kolkata, India, she served many selflessly and she inspired, she inspired many to serve and to value and to give support to those around the world in extreme poverty. She's one of the most incredible and honorable lives lived in recent decades. 
But a few years ago, when I visited Kolkata myself, Kolkata struck me as one of the most extreme places in the world in terms of poverty that I'd ever seen. Despite Mother Teresa's extreme popularity, despite her incredible life lived, despite her incredible influence, poverty was still prevalent throughout the world and even in Kolkata itself. Her life was incredible and full of progress in many ways, but, but this progress was so limited. And I want you to know, I want you to see that this is not so with Jesus. This is what we see here in, in Isaiah 11. Jesus, too, has particular love and care for those in need. And he will finally eliminate poverty. He will finally eliminate sin and establish peace throughout the world. And he does this through his righteousness. His perfect life and his sacrifice on the cross atone for sin. And these are the grounds upon which salvation and peace are founded. And he promises that he'll finally and permanently bring peace by the word of his mouth. That he's going to decide and judge perfectly in goodness and in justice for the afflicted and the poor of the earth. And that merely by his word, everlasting peace will be secured. There will no longer be need for armies and movements, education and propaganda or advertising schemes to try to, to, try to create or foster peace. But, but he himself will do this fully and perfectly as no one else has ever done. That's the promise that we find in Isaiah 11. The promise of the righteousness he's going to bring. So what, is this, what does this peace look like? Here in Isaiah 11, it goes on beginning in verse 6 to give us a glimpse of what the peace Jesus will bring looks like. And especially the degree, of, the degree to which peace will be established and that degree, unlike anything we've ever seen, is going to be perfection. Beginning in verse 6, maybe you notice there's this rich imagery which grabs our attention. That the wolf and the lamb, the leopard and the goat, the calf and the lion and the cow and the bear will all finally be tamed and dwell peacefully together. Even the dog and the bunny might dwell peacefully together. And what's more, these great predators will be in peaceful submission and of no threat even to toddlers and small children. As we think of these predators in the midst of small children, it makes us uncomfortable. If you think of some of the little guys here at Redemption and putting them in the presence of lions and bears... Just the thought makes me cringe, and I'm tempted to just think, well, you know, maybe we'll just keep them separate from the bears, you know, anyways, just to be safe. But, but the peace Jesus brings will be perfection, and that's not going to be needed. That's what the promise of, of Isaiah 11 teaches us. How strange this is and how different it is from the realities of the world that we know where, where we have dangerous animals have to be 
caged or sedated for us to interact with them. In order for us to observe them at zoos, we build these elaborate enclosures where we can be close to them somehow but still manage to be safe. But this peace with wild animals in Isaiah 11, especially the reference to snakes, uh, when, it, when it talks about adders. Adders are poisonous snakes, if you don't know that. These references even to snakes remind us of the fall of man back at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, when Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent. And these promises are meant to show us that the future peace and the righteousness that the branch will bring are going to establish and restore the paradise of creation, which was lost when Adam and Eve sinned. It's a restored paradise which was before sin, before the earth was poisoned, before it was groaning, before danger entered nature, before strife between people and nature, and between, before strife occurred between people themselves. It's a restoration to paradise before when cruelty and oppression and neglect toward nature and toward one another began. Here in Isaiah 11, we find this picture of the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus will restore when he comes again. It's a picture of perfect and everlasting peace characterized by the voluntary submission of nature to God as it was supposed to be, as well as man's reverence for all of creation and all life and for God. As one of my favorite preachers, Pastor Charlie Dates says, he says, especially when Jesus comes again, all creation is finally going to submit to its creator. All of creation will finally submit to its creator. If you don't know Pastor Charlie Dates and you need a good sermon to listen to during the week, he might look that up one time. That the the promise of perfect peace that Jesus offers is it's consistent with the hymn that we, we often sing, uh, the hymn, There's a Fountain, which, which sings, we'll be saved to sin no more. We'll no longer be in rebellion against God. Saved to sin no more. But we know that until Jesus comes, we don't yet have perfect peace, don't we? We still know and we see evil and futility in the world around us and sin within each of us. But the righteousness that he's bringing is already beginning to break in. And we can take some hope from that because it's evidence that he will come again and that these promises are true. Even now, the peace and the renewing of our hearts is beginning as the Holy Spirit works within us, within you and me, to change us from who we used to be to align us more and more with who God calls us to be. Our knowledge of the Lord and of his word now helps shape how we live and think more and more that we might glorify him and be aligned to goodness and hopefully setting aside our sins and our rebellion more and more. The theologian John Calvin wrote that, that somewhat similar to the animals, all people are untamed until subdued by the gospel. All are swelled with ambition and pride until they are cured by the medicine of Jesus' gospel and the Holy Spirit. 
This knowledge of God is the remedy for the self-love that reigns in us. The self-love which seeks our own advantage, attempting to make the world around us subject to our desires. And so because of the gospel, we no longer live clinging to and serving these idols of, of perfect, comfortable, and successful lives, but instead we're assured of God's eternal peace when the righteous one will come. And we need not despair. We need not despair because you have a secure hope in Jesus and in the eternal, everlasting, perfect peace he's going to bring. In John chapter 16, Jesus said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulations, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Because he's overcome the world, we need not exchange evil for evil, but we can trust that he sees all things, that he sees all hearts perfectly, and that one day he's going to bring peace and justice. And therefore, we can find peace and we can find perseverance in the middle of all kinds of troubles and tribulations that, that we face, that you face week in and week out. We can love our enemies without retaliating, even when it means we might end up on a cross ourselves because we know Jesus has established a perfect and an everlasting peace for us. And that's breaking in. It's breaking in there, and it's breaking in in that God calls us to pursue goodness and justice and peace even now as we serve those around us with love and care, with the fullness of our lives and with full effort. In order that we might glorify Jesus, in order that we might embody and reflect his love, and in order that we might adorn the gospel message so that others would hear it well. But we know that this perfect peace will not be accomplished unless and until he finally comes again. And so as we wrap up this morning and, and before I head back to my seat, I want you to see that Isaiah 11 is a vision of our world. It's a vision of our world that's free from injustice and destruction. It's a vision of our world with perfect and everlasting peace. A peace that Jesus has won. And a peace that he's going to establish forever when he returns. And that it's his peace. It's not terror. It's not fear that are going to have the, the last word or the everlasting word. It's the peace of Jesus. And so as we approach Christmas, I want to take a minute and remind you to set your eyes and your joy not only on the good gifts given to you, but also on this wonderful giver of the gifts. As God gives and establishes according to his love, and by his own sacrifice, he establishes your peace. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, as we read earlier, says, The root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire. 
and his resting place shall be glorious. And so I want to leave you with just two really quick thoughts that are meaningful, I believe, about about this root of Jesse. First, I want you to see, as it talks about the root of Jesse, that, that the forest imagery has now switched. Not only was, was Jesus described as the branch coming up out of the stump of Jesse, but now he's described also as the root of Jesse, who precedes Jesse. It's very similar, a thought, to what we read a few weeks ago in, in the Gospel of Mark, when Mark taught that Jesus is not merely David's son, but David's Lord. And so our hope, your hope for peace, is not just on a man named Jesus, but it's on the Lord of all creation. And second, I want you to see that the root of David, this title for the root of Jesse, the root of David, is a powerful title in the Bible. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, we're told that it's the root of Jesse, the same person who is the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God who created all things. He's the one whom the people of all tribes, peoples, and languages praise. Why do they praise him? They praise him because they've received his righteousness. They've been washed in his blood, and in him they have no more hunger or thirst or suffering under the scorching heat, and they have no more tears, but rather they have peace. Friends, it's Jesus, the root of David, who in Revelation, the host of angels fall on their faces to worship and glorify, and we ought to as well. And so, this righteous branch will come again, bringing peace to all creation, to all the nations. There will be no more need for zoos, no more need for the United Nations, no more need for the Nobel Prize. Once Jesus establishes peace for you, once and for all. And so, therefore, as Paul writes in Romans 15, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for what you've done, what you've given to establish our peace. not because of anything we've done, but certainly out of your righteousness, Lord Jesus, we, we find peace and hope and joy and love. We thank you for coming, taking the form of a servant, becoming man, dying on a cross, being raised to life again, that we might have hope forever. Help us, we pray, to continue to walk and to live in faith. Give us strength to walk in the assurance that you've given us, to walk with confidence in the peace you've given that we might endure troubles and tribulations day by day and week by week faithfully, that we might 
live faithfully in a way that shows your goodness to others and that they might see your goodness through our lives. We thank you for your word, which instructs us and gives us truth. We're grateful to pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.